Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Simone Riscala, and you are listening to the Endow Podcast, a conversation not just about the feminine genius in general, but about cultivating your particular feminine genius through the Catholic intellectual tradition and intentional community. Aquinas for beginners. Endowed study guides of Thomas Aquinas' philosophical and theological writing, part one. Chapter one, introduction. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. May Mary's seat of wisdom be a clear haven for all who search for wisdom, the sure and final goal of all true knowing. May our journey into wisdom be freed of every hindrance by the intercession of the one who, in giving birth to the truth and treasuring it in her heart, has shared it forever with all the world. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why St. Thomas? And Tao is dedicated to the promotion of a new feminism based on the teachings of Pope John Paul II. John Paul II drew much of his understanding of the human person from the work of St. Thomas Aquinas, born in 1225 and died in 1274. It is important that Endow promote the study of the sources John Paul II drew upon, as well as his own writing, as a means to better understand his teaching on the nature and dignity of women. The study guide we are beginning today is devoted to understanding many of the ideas about human beings and our relation to God that St. Thomas explored in his most important work, the Summa Theologiae. The endowed course on St. Thomas Aquinas is actually divided into separate study guides. Aquinas for Beginners Part 1 is dedicated to understanding some fundamental concepts such as sense knowledge and rational knowledge as well as the relationship between the intellect and the will. These concepts set the groundwork for understanding Thomas's explanation of the passion, the focus of which is the last few chapters of this study guide. On completing part one, we highly recommend you continue with Aquinas for Beginners part two. While these two studies can stand on their own, they are meant to work together. In part one, we will explore man's origin and fall from grace and learn how the loss of mastery over our passions separates us from God. Part two focuses on repairing that relationship with God, broken by original sin, through living a virtuous life. Together, the two studies will give a comprehensive vision of a woman or a man's relationship with God over time. Thomas's thought is deep philosophical, and theological, but worth the struggle. Concepts explored in Thomas's Summa are embedded in much of our Catholic thought. It is our hope that once you become familiar with the Summa Theologiae, you will return to it again and again to plumb the depths of the thoughts of this brilliant philosopher and saint. John Paul II was attracted to the work of St. Thomas for many reasons. Some of these most important ideas that that Aquinas defends are the goodness of the material world, including the human body, the human person as a union of body and soul, the importance of integration of natural and supernatural knowledge, 
of seeing reason and faith as partners that come together in our quest to understand the truth about ourselves and the world. The necessity of engaging people who disagree with us in a way that is respectful and rational. Discussing questions. Stop for a moment and talk about each of these four points. Why is each relevant to endow? Can you see any connection between these points and what we have read in John Paul II's Letter to Women or Mulieri's Signitatum on the Dignity and Vocation of Women? Thomas the Saint. Thomas Aquinas is Saint Thomas for one reason only, his personal holiness. His holiness completely infused his work as a thinker, teacher, and writer. For Thomas, the life of faith and the life of work were one. He had a deep love of Christ, which permeates his work. He recognized that mankind is broken and fallen, and it is only through Christ that we can be reunited with God and brought into the fullness of what it means to be a human being, made in his image and likeness. The key to understanding Thomas's work is to recognize his intense desire to be a disciple of Christ and to share that path with others. Although Thomas's work is viewed as academic, he did not write to impress the scholars. His primary concern was the salvation of souls. If we can get past the somewhat dry, systematic approach he uses in the Summa, we can see that Thomas was a man deeply in love with God who desired nothing more than Christ. When he would lecture or write or study or argue, he would always begin with silent prayer. It is said that when he ran into difficulty in his work, he would kneel before the tabernacle with his head pressed upon it and in tears beg for inspiration. Following is a prayer that Thomas wrote in which he is reported to have said every day before an image of Christ it shows how complete his sense of life was. He was clearly not just concerned about being a good academic. This prayer reflects his humility and his desire to be nothing more than a servant of God. We will look at the whole prayer again at the end of this study. We should find that what we have learned from him is summarized in it, and hopefully we will have a more profound understanding and appreciation of it. Thomas prayed, O merciful God, grant that I may desire ardently, search prudently, recognize truly, and bring to perfect completion whatever is pleasing to you for the praise and glory of your name. Put my life in good order, O my God. Grant that I may know what you require me to do. Bestow upon me the power to accomplish your will, as is necessary and fitting for the salvation of souls. Of my soul. Grant to me, O Lord my God, that I may not falter in times of prosperity or adversity, so that I may not be exalted in the former, nor dejected in the latter. May I not rejoice in anything unless it leads me to you. May I not be saddened by anything unless it turns me from you. May I desire to please no one, nor fear to displease anyone but you. May all transitory things, O Lord, be worthless to me, and may all things eternal be ever cherished by me.
May any joy without you be burdensome for me, and may I not desire anything else besides you. May all work, O Lord, delight me when done for your sake, and may all repose not centered in you, ever wearisome for me. Grant unto me, O my God, that I may direct my heart to you, and that in my failures I may ever feel remorse for my sins and never lose the resolve to change. O Lord my God, make me submissive without protest, poor without discouragement, base without regret, patient without complaint, humble without posturing, careful without frivolity, mature without gloom, and quick-witted without flippancy. O Lord my God, let me fear you without losing hope, be truthful without guile, do good works without presumption, rebuke my neighbor without haughtiness, and without hypocrisy, strengthen him by word and example. Give to me, O Lord God, a watchful heart, which no capricious thoughts can lure away from you. Give to me a noble heart, which no unworthy desire can debate. Give to me a resolute heart, which no evil intention can divert. Give to me a stalwart heart, which no tribulation can overcome. Give to me a temperate heart, which no violent passion can enslave. Give to me, O Lord my God, understanding of you, diligence in seeking you, wisdom in finding you, discourse ever pleasing to you, perseverance in waiting for you, and confidence in finally embracing you. Grant that with your hardships I may be burdened in reparation here, that your benefits I may use in gratitude upon the way, that in your joys I may delight by glorifying you in the kingdom of heaven, you who live and reign, God's world without end. Amen. Discussion questions. Number two, do any of Thomas's petitions sound like your own? Do you sense any areas where his spiritual journey was like yours? Number three, do you find that his petitions are not your own, but that by reading them, they create in you the desire to make them count? Revelation and nature, faith and reason, theology and philosophy. Much of Thomas's work was devoted to trying to understand the world. He took on many different kinds of questions, such as how does procreation work? How are plants different from animals? How can we figure out the best way to achieve human happiness? One of the reasons Thomas was able to integrate his faith life and his work life was that he understood God to be speaking in both to him in both. Thomas believed that one can come to know God through both the natural world through the use of our own reason, and through supernatural or divine revelation. Picture below shows that both our origin and destination is God. The explanation that follows will help us to understand what this picture means. God is the creator of the world and the universe as a whole. He created human beings with minds that are able to understand much about the world. When we use our reason to understand ourselves and our world without any input from God, who gave us our minds and the world, then we are doing philosophy. However, 
philosophy need not be an end in itself. It can bring us to faith. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states this beautifully. Man's faculties make him capable of coming to a knowledge of the existence of a personal God. But for a man to be able to enter into real intimacy with him, God willed both to reveal himself to man and to give him the grace of being able to welcome this revelation in faith. The proofs of God's existence, however, can predispose one to faith, help one to see that faith is not opposed to reason. From the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 35. As Christians, we believe that before the fall, God endowed our first parents with three preternatural gifts. One, freedom from death. Two, freedom from suffering. And three, freedom from concupiscence, ignorance, and sin. Our first parents would not suffer or die, and they had complete control over their instincts and desires. We will focus on this third gift, which, which deals directly with our passions. Thomas explains that before original sin, our intellect and will were perfectly united. Our rational powers were stronger, and we were less distracted by our appetites or desires. In this original state, we were able to understand the world and to find God by reflecting on the world he created. We easily recognized that the world was not the be-all and end-all, that what mattered most was our relationship with God, our Creator. Our first parents had an intimate relationship with our Creator. We see evidence of this in the book of Genesis when we hear of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. However, once sin entered the picture, the light of our reason was dimmed and our appetites or desires became very distracted. No longer were the intellect and will working together. Despite the fact that God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, he never ceased to be present to them. But through sin and the darkening of our reason, we put the world before God and lost touch with our Creator. We began to rely on ourselves and not on Him who breathed us into being. It became much more difficult for us to understand the world, much less to find God through it. Many came to believe that the world is the be-all and end-all, having no notion of the world itself as created, as wholly dependent on God. These people are still able to reason about the world, but they do not see the bigger picture. They do not understand their origin and therefore cannot understand their destiny. Instead of the previous picture, all they see is this. Jesus worked the study guide for the picture. Because they are only seeing part of the picture, much of what they think, much of what they think about the world has an element of truth that is distorted because it is not placed in the larger context. For example, someone might say, the most important thing to me is that the baby is healthy. Of course, health is an important part of the flourishing, of flourishing in the world, and if the world were the whole story, Striving for health above all would make sense. But if the world is created, and if God has a goal for us beyond the world, namely eternal life with him, then what we should say is, what I want most for my child is that he have eternal life with God. 
Original sin has damaged our natural ability to understand the world and our relation to God. We need supernatural help, help beyond what God has already given us. We need divine revelation. Once again, the Catechism illustrates this beautifully. Quote, God, who dwells in unapproachable light, wants to communicate his own divine life to the men he freely created in order to adopt them as his sons in his only begotten son. By revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable of responding to him and of knowing him and of loving him far beyond their own natural capacity. End quote. From the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 52. God began to speak to us through the prophets, through sacred scripture, and finally, by becoming incarnate as Jesus Christ and infusing the church with his Holy Spirit. Studying about God through revelation is called theology, and it takes a certain amount of faith to enter into such a study. That is why theology is often referred to as faith-seeking understanding. To do theology is to use our natural reason to reflect on what God reveals in these supernatural ways. In order to do a fruitful study of theology, we must have faith that God is, in fact, the source of the teaching of the prophets, of sacred scripture, and of the church. Faith itself is a supernatural gift to our intellect, helping to guide it in spite of the damage of original sin. We will study this in Aquinas for Beginners, book 2. When we do philosophy, we confine ourselves to what we can know about the world without the aid of supernatural revelation, what people of other religions or no religion have access to. When we do theology, we presuppose the truth of what has been supernaturally revealed to us. If we talk to people who reject or do not know the revelation, much of what we say may not make sense to them. Although philosophy and theology are different in these important ways, St. Thomas is very careful to argue that they cannot contradict each other, that because both nature and the supernatural come from God, both will lead to one and the same truth as long as they are understood properly. Thomas argues that if faith and reason ever seem to contradict each other, it means we have either made a mistake in our understanding of revelation, a mistake in our reasoning, or both. John Paul II felt so strongly that the world should understand this concept that he wrote an entire encyclical, Vide Ratio, for Faith and Reason, dedicated to the subject. In it, he teaches, quote, this truth, which God reveals to us in Jesus Christ, is not opposed to the truth which philosophy perceives. On the contrary, the two modes of knowledge lead to truth in all its fullness. The unity of truth is a fundamental premise of human reasoning, as the principle of non-contradiction makes clear. Revelation renders this unity certain, showing that the God of creation is also the God of salvation history. It is the one and the same God who establishes and guarantees the intelligibility and reasonableness of the natural order of things upon which scientists confidently depend and who reveals himself as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This unity of truth, natural and revealed, is embodied in a living and personal way in Christ, as the apostle reminds us. 
truth within Jesus. And because St. Thomas had confidence that faith and reason are not inherently contradictory, he was open to human wisdom, whatever its source. He was very interested in the work of Islamic and Jewish philosophers and other theologians. He was writing in a time that was heavily influenced by the pagan philosopher Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC. Aristotle's writings raised questions about God's nature and the nature of the human soul that many feared could undermine basic Christian beliefs. St. Thomas saw truths in much of Aristotle's thought, despite the fact that Aristotle did not know Christ. Aristotle saw so much beauty in the created world. To him, everything in nature has its function, and nothing is without purpose. St. Thomas fused Aristotle's thought with Christian doctrine to help us see that we can know God through our senses, through creation itself. Thomas did not fully adopt the thinking he found in Aristotle or in the work of any other thinker. He gathered the truths he found in these sources and incorporated them into his own work. His confidence in the capacity of human reason to understand truth enabled him to be open to a variety of ideas from people he profoundly disagreed with in other areas. His writing. Thomas was an extremely prolific writer. His works include 15 philosophical or theological works, of which the Summa Theologiae is most well known. 11 commentaries on books of the Bible, 12 commentaries on Aristotle and four other commentaries, five treatises addressing particular controversies referred to as polemical works. Given the fact that Thomas lived only 49 years, this level of productivity seems astonishing. But his abilities as a scholar did not distract Thomas from the bigger picture. There is a reliable story about Thomas that clearly illustrates his priorities. Dominic of Caserta, the sacristan of the Chapel of St. Nicholas in Naples, reported that on one morning during the last year of Thomas's life, before the rest of the community had risen and entered the chapel, he saw Thomas alone, praying in front of the crucifix. This did not surprise Dominic because Thomas frequently came very early to pray, but suddenly he realized that Thomas was kneeling two feet above the floor, levitating before the crucifix. Dominic reported that while he stood staring in half, he heard a voice coming from the crucifix saying, You have spoken well of me, Thomas. What would you have as your reward? To which Thomas answered, Nothing but you, Lord. Thomas's personal holiness and the importance of his scholarly work were well recognized following his death in 1274. Fifty-one years after his death, he was canonized as a saint by Pope John XXII. In the 15th and 16th centuries, Thomas's Summa Theologiae became the chief textbook for theological education. In 1567, Pope Pius V declared Thomas a doctor of the church. In his 1879 encyclical entitled Eterni Patri, or On the Restoration of Christian Philosophy, 
Pope Leo XIII called for a renewed reliance on Aquinas in theological work. In 1914, Pope Pius X mandated that the Summa Theologiae should be the basis for teaching in all pontifical universities. In 1917, Benedict XV required all religious to devote themselves for two years at least to philosophy and for four years to theology following the teaching of St. Thomas. Ian mandated that all professors in seminaries and pontifical universities teach according to the arguments, doctrine, and principles of St. Thomas. In the second half of the 20th century, Thomas remained an important influence in how the church understands herself, and he was singled out as an exemplary teacher for Catholics by Pope Paul VI. St. Thomas's work is referred as reference throughout the documents of Vatican II and in the Code of Canon Law, and he is among the most frequently cited writers in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Is everything is relative? One of the greatest challenges of the Catholic Church in recent times has been the fight against relativism and subjectivism. People under the influence of these isms say things like, you have your truth and I have mine. Or you only think that because you are Catholic. The central claim of relativism and subjectivism is that there is no such thing as a universal objective truth which applies everywhere and always. Or that if there is such a truth, it is not possible for us to know it. St. Thomas is one of the most important defenders of the Catholic view that there is a knowable truth which applies to all human beings. The difference between contemporary subjectivism and the Catholic view can be traced to our explicit embrace of the truth that the world is created by God, truth of the big picture we had discussed previously. Possibility of knowing objective truth makes all the difference to how we and our contemporaries see the world. Because this idea is so important, we will look at it now in some detail. Creation and the Objectivity of Truth In the act of creation, God established an order in the world, an order which is knowable. This order is objective. It is in things, independent of their being accurately known by any knower. And this order is universal. It is in the whole of creation. As far as we know, Human beings are the only creatures who have conscious intelligence. We are the only ones who know the world. We have intelligence. We know that we know it. We have self-consciousness. Because human beings have reason, we can understand the order that God established in creation. We have the dignity of understanding the objective truth. We are discoverers, not inventors, of the truth. There is a joke that has been circulated through the internet which illustrates the difference between inventing and discovering the truth about the world. One day, a group of scientists got together and decided that humans had come a long way and no longer needed God. The group picked one scientist to go and tell God the news. The scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point that we can create life. It's a simple matter of zapping electricity through mud. 
Dodd listened patiently, and after the scientist was finished talking, Dodd said, very well, how about this? Have a person-creating contest. To which the scientist replied, okay, great. But Dodd added, now, we're going to do this just like I did it originally. The scientist said, sure, no problem, and bent down and grabbed a handful of dirt. Dodd just looked at the scientist and said, no, no, no. You go get your own dirt. Human beings were made in the image and likeness of God. We forget at times that we are not God. Everything we do is dependent upon him who created us ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. Because we have free will, we can direct ourselves to act in accordance with the order, the objective truth, which we discover in creation. We have the dignity of being able to choose to act or to not act in accord with God's ordering. All the other creatures of the world follow God's order because they have to, either because they are compelled by the laws of physics, for example, unsupported rocks have to fall down, or by their own instincts, for example, squirrels have to gather nuts in the fall. They cannot help it. As noted above, Subjectivism claims that there is no universal objective truth for us to discover, but only a subjective truth which is invented by each person. A variation on this is relativism, which claims that the truth is always relative to the particular person or culture or period in history. Subjectivism and relativism overlook God as creator and establisher of an objective order. They get stuck in the world and miss the big picture. They forget or choose to ignore the fact that God is the source of the world, and he is calling us to union with him in eternity. St. Thomas's insistence that there is an objective truth knowable to all human beings by use of their natural reason makes him a very important counterweight to the subjectivism and relativism of our time. His respect for natural knowledge and his work to show how reason and faith can complement rather than compete with each other, can be a big help to us now. At a time when many people are skeptical about reason itself and extremely suspicious of truths held by faith. Discussing questions. Number four. How would a person's attitude toward the truth be different if he thought he were the inventor of the truth versus if he thought he were the discoverer of the truth? Number five. Pope Benedict XVI is careful to warn about the dangers of relativism. Can you think of any examples of relativism in the world today? Number six, consider the following quote from the Second Vatican Council document, Nostra Aetate, or the Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religion. Religions, however, that are bound up with an advanced culture have struggled to answer the same questions by means of more refined concepts and a more developed language. Thus, in Hinduism, men contemplate the divine mystery and express it through an inexhaustible abundance of myths and through searching philosophical inquiry. They seek freedom from the anguish of our human condition, either through aesthetical practices or profound meditation, or a flight to God with love and trust. 
Again, Buddhism, in its various forms, realizes the radical insufficiency of this changeable world. It teaches a way by which men, in a devout and confident spirit, may be able either to acquire the state of perfect liberation or attain by their own efforts or through higher faults, supreme illumination. Likewise, other religions found everywhere try to counter the restlessness of the human heart, each in its own manner, by proposing ways comprising teaching, rules of life, and sacred rites. The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. He regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life, those precepts and teachings which, though differing in many aspects from the ones he holds and sets forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Indeed, she proclaims and ever must proclaim Christ the way, the truth, and the life, from John 14, 6, in whom men may find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. Quote. Number seven, what does religious tolerance mean to you? Is there a difference between tolerance and acceptance? If so, what is the difference? The Summa Theologiae. The Summa Theologiae is Thomas's most famous work and in many ways his most important. The Latin word summa is the root of our English word summary. The title Summa Theologiae could be translated into English as summary of theology. The word theology comes from two Greek words, theo, which means God, and logos, which can be translated as word or reason. In the context of the word theology, logos means study. So our word theology literally means the study of what we know about God. Aquinas' Summa Theologiae is his attempt to summarize what we know about God. It was traditional for teachers of St. Thomas's time to make such a summary. In fact, there were many summas of theology. What distinguishes Thomas's from the rest is its quality. It is so excellent that it became widely used and greatly influenced later teachers of Christian theology. Thomas takes a very systematic approach to explaining the whole of Christian theology. The Summa Theologiae is structured in terms of what we have been calling the big picture. The structural outline of the Summa Theologiae begins with God, moves into creation, specifically centering on how man is made in the image and likeness of God, man's rejection of God through sin, and concludes with his return back to God through virtues, sacraments, and grace. St. Thomas paints a theological picture of man's fall from grace and his journey back to God. See the study guide for a graphic outline of this uh, work. The Summa Theologiae is divided into five main sections. One, the first part, which contains sacred doctrine, the Trinity, creation, the angels, the six days, man, and the government of creation. Two, the first part of the second part, which contains man's last end, human acts, passions, habits, vice and sin, law, and grace. 
three, the second part of the second part, which contains the virtues, faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, and acts which pertain to man. Four, the third part, which contains the incarnation, the life of Christ, the sacraments, baptism, confirmation, holy Eucharist, penance. St. Thomas died in the middle of his treatise on penance. The remainder of the Summa Theologiae is known as the supplement. It is a compilation of Thomas's writings gathered from his commentary on the fourth book of the sentences of Peter Lombard, most likely by his friend Fra Reynaldo de Paperno. In part and fifth, the supplement to the third part, which includes penance and supreme unction or the anointing of the sick, holy orders, matrimony, the resurrection, and appendices. The Summa Theologiae is written using a form called the Disputed Question, which was a standard format for St. Thomas's time. Each topic, called a question, is broken down into more particular questions called articles. This medieval jargon can be confusing for modern readers. The topics are referred to as questions. Questions are referred to as articles. Each article follows this format. Question, objections which contains objections to Thomas's answer to the article's question, the said contra, or the on the contrary, which is a citation of one or more authorities who disagree with the objection, and then the respondeo, or the I answer that, which is Thomas's response to the article's question, and finally the replies, which are replies to each objection. As mentioned previously, Thomas addressed a wide range of topics. Let's look at what Thomas had to say about the subject of guardian angels. From the Summa Theologica, Part 1, Question 113, Article 4, Whether Angels Are Appointed to the Guardianship of All Men. Objection 1. It would seem that angels are not appointed to the guardianship of all men, for it is written of Christ in Philippians 2.7, but he was made in the likeness of men and in habit found as a man. If, therefore, angels are appointed to the guardianship of all men, Christ also would have had an angel guardian. This is unseemly, for Christ is greater than all the angels. Therefore, angels are not appointed to the guardianship of all men. Objection 2. Further, Adam was the first of all men. It was not fitting that he should have an angel guardian, at least in the state of innocence. For then he was not beset by any danger. Therefore, angels are not appointed to the guardianship of all men. Objection 3. Further, angels are appointed to the guardianship of all men, that they may take them by the hand and guide them to eternal life, encourage them to do good work, and protect them against the assaults of the demons. But men who are foreknown to damnation never attain to eternal life. Infidels also, though at times they perform good works, do not perform them well, for they have not a right intention. For faith directs the intention, as Augustine says. Moreover, the coming of Antichrist will be according to the works of Satan, as it is written in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, angels are not deputed to the guardianship of all men. On the contrary, 
It is the authority of Jerome quoted above in section 113, article 2, for he says that each soul has an angel appointed to guard it. I answer that man, while in this state of life, is, as it were, on a road by which he should journey towards heaven. On this road, man is threatened by many dangers, both from within and from without, according to Psalm 159, verse 4. In this way wherein I walk, they have hidden a snare for me. And therefore, as guardians are appointed for men who have to pass by an unsafe road, so an angel guardian is assigned to each man as long as he is a wayfarer. When, however, he arrives at the end of life, he no longer has a guardian angel, but in the kingdom he will have an angel to reign with him, and hell a demon to punish him. Reply to Objection 1 Christ as man was guided immediately by the word of God, wherefore he did not need to be guarded by an angel. Again, as regards his soul, he was a comprehensor, so in regards to his passable body, he was a wayfarer. In this latter respect, it was right that he should have not a guardian angel as superior to him, but a ministering angel as inferior to him. Whence it is written in Matthew 4.11 that angels came and ministered to him. Reply to Objection 2. In the state of innocence, man was not threatened by any peril from within, because within him all was well ordered, as we have said above in 95.1 and 3. But peril threatened without, from without on account of the snares of the demons, as was proved by the event. For this reason, he needed a guardian angel. Reply to objection three. Just as the foreknown, the infidels, and even antichrists are not deprived of the inferior help of natural reason, so neither are they deprived of that exterior help granted by God to the whole human race namely the guardianship of the angels. And although the help which they receive therefrom does not result in their deserving eternal life by good works, it does nevertheless conduce to their being protected from certain evils which would hurt both themselves and others. For even the demons are held off by the good angels, lest they hurt as much as they would. In like manner, Antichrist will not do as much harm as he would wish. Is it not reassuring to know that Thomas thinks the answer to this question is a resounding yes? It is also interesting to note that in the Summa, Thomas said that the mother guardian angel probably guards the life of her child during the time of her pregnancy. Thomas says, quote, as long as the child is in the mother's womb, it is not entirely separate, but by reason of a certain intimate tie is still part of her, just as the fruit while hanging on the tree is part of the tree. And therefore, it can be said with some degree of probability that the angel who guards the mother guards the child while in the womb. But at its birth, when it becomes separate from the mother, an angel guardian is appointed to it. End quote. Review this disputed question structure closely and familiarize yourself with it. All the articles in the Summa Theologiae will follow this same structure. Taking the time to review this structure periodically will be very helpful for those who are unfamiliar with it. Dow has inserted the full text of all the sections from the Summa Theologiae noted in this study guide in a separate source document to accompany this study guide. 
you may access the entire SUMA at www.newadvent.org slash SUMA. For personal meditations, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word, to know himself, so that, by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. From Pope John Paul II, Fide at Rothfield. If this episode was helpful for you, please consider sharing it with a friend or two. We would also appreciate it so much if you left a rating and review so that more women can discover Endow and our mission to help women cultivate their unique feminine genius. Please also check out the link below to learn how to become a monthly donor to help defray podcast production costs. And of course, if you'd like to talk to me about joining or starting your own Endow group, please email me at simone.riscala at endowgroups.org. And remember, you are the heart of Endow.